You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. I am not aligned to one theory of psychology. They all work, but go and find out a bit about you. When you understand that about you, you start to look for things and patterns that work for you. So that's kind of the the methodology I use. My guest today is named Clint Adams. He is the author of Lighting the Blue Flame. He's a former counselor and a former police officer. Welcome to the show, Clint. Okay, my name is Clint Adams. I'm, uh, I, I guess, I'm now a an author and, and a, um, I guess, a mental health specialist. It's kind of um, something that's evolved over the years. I've worked as a counsellor in the past. Worked in, you know, my, my studies started in psychology. I was very interested in, in doing that kind of stuff, and that psychology led me into. HR, human resources kind of roles over time and, and work with Victoria Police here in Australia. So I'm, I'm, I live in Australia. Um, and, yeah, essentially over probably the last 10 years, I've got really interested in trying to put into practice a lot of my counselling work and the work I did with teams in HR settings around mental health and wellbeing kind of programs that are developed over time. And, and that's evolved into me writing the book, which is Lighting the Blue Flame which is about helping um, younger people with um, suicide prevention initiatives and stuff like that. Essentially, you know, it all kind of, I guess they, they melded in together at some point where I was dealing with adults at the workplace and realised that, you know, obviously all adults have always been, have been kids. And so you kind of put two and two together over time and, and, and you realise that, you know, if we can get into younger people who are at higher risk, um, and look, not everyone's at high risk as a child because it don't all happen as a kid. When I was being a police counsellor, for example, um, you know, obviously really well-adjusted um, people have bad things happen to them. So post-traumatic stress can be something that comes on later. So it's not all about, you know, having a bad childhood that you end up with mental health issues. It can happen to anyone at some stage, depending on, you know, I guess what, what happens and, and things like that. So for me, it was really about trying to... Um, to make things happen for younger people and see if we can make them more resilient, I guess. So, you know, a lot of people get through bad things over time. It's going to happen to us for human beings. And, um, yeah, so essentially that's what I've been working on probably the last two years, mostly when the book came out last year, which wasn't a great year for obviously with COVID. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, working on programs, trying to help uh, organisations who have frontline um First responders kind of stuff, you know, police, your, your ambulance and, and, and the firefighters and those who are experiencing bad things on a daily basis because that's part of their role. Um, so, yeah, essentially that's that's my, my nutshell version of, of what I do. Wow, that's incredible. And, uh, you know, I can – I can kind of speak a little bit to the frontline workers. You know, I have, I have family members that are their first responders, and I know that uh, – I know they've seen a lot of crazy stuff, and, and, and I think uh, – you know, they don't, they don't really talk about it, but I know that, 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 that's got to weigh heavy on them. And it's got to be really, I, I would, I would have to assume that that would just be mentally draining just to see, you know, a lot of times the worst of society on a daily basis, it's got to be a, a hard, a heavy weight to carry with them. 
Oh, very much. I mean, I've been a police officer and, um, you know, that was kind of where I went first out of university, even though I did a psychology degree, I, I really wanted to get into the forensic side of stuff. This is going back in the 90s and so I'm aging. But, um, yeah, you're right. Um, you know, like I've said some pretty horrendous things as, as a first responder, as a cop, you know, like you say, you, you don't get called there for fun. You get called there for, for, for not so good reasons. Um um, but look, uh, one of the things it has taught me too, though, is that, you know, sometimes these people are doing things that when you look back, you know, that there's reasons for how they act, how they feel because of things that have happened to them. So, you know, um, you kind of have to keep that in mind too, that, you know, people don't become, they don't just go doing this stuff as an adult. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's personal circumstances. There's, um, again, like I was saying about high risk for an individual. So, um, you know, we, I guess part of it, part of what I'm trying to do is go, hey, maybe we can prevent some of these people being those perpetrators by either breaking a pattern. So if they've been child, had child abuse in their life and then they become a child abuser because they, they don't know what normal relationships are like because this is what they've been, you know, through. It's about kind of going, well, that shouldn't continue. Can we do stuff earlier on where a person who has been abused and, you know, we get to them early enough, we're doing things at a school level where they can kind of analyse their own thoughts and, and, and find normal relationships and do normal things and not take their rage out on someone else because this happened to them. You know, so a lot of those things are, I guess, symptoms of, of I'm not saying, you know, condoning it or, or saying that everybody's got a, a good reason for it, but essentially a lot of it when you look back and, you know, this is where you're dealing with people once they come out of those things, um, sometimes you realise that, you know, they have had those issues and they've never been able to deal with it because they've been a young kid, they've had no good role models. That's the other thing about this whole process. If, you're, if your parents are doing stuff to you as a child, you're not going to have good role models at home who's going to be able to help you unless you're lucky where, you know, you've got an uncle or an aunt who takes you under their wing. And, and the people who get through a lot of this kind of stuff sometimes have that person in their life, but not everyone does. So, um, you know, for me, I really focus on what can we as a, society doing a lot of people say oh you know it's, it's up to the parents to, to help their kids get through this stuff but if the parents are <laughs> i won't use a horrible word but not so nice people then um you know somebody else kind of needs to set up step up and, and i guess you know if the kids are going to school you've got that opportunity for at least a few years to have a, an impact and and so this is kind of the stuff i'm trying to really not to preach, but trying to, you know, promote and, and, and focus on. I think we do a lot more um, when we understand a bit more about neuroscience and understand how those kids and the patterns they developed over time, which can be obviously detrimental to their health later on, we can kind of go back and go, we can do some more. We don't do this stuff at school from what I can see. And, and you know, I've been, been at schools, I've been talking to, People like yourself on, on podcasts who, who talk to mental health people that are doing the stuff that I'm doing, and a lot of them, it's, it's quite new to them when we start talking about the neuroscience and how we use that and how we use the social aspects. So, you know, when we think about counselling, counselling is a funny one because um, a bit of counsellor, you do one-on-one -on -one work, but essentially we don't live in an island. You know, we, 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 we have other people around us. So sometimes working on myself, is not enough. I kind of have to understand how that fits in with other people and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, they're all tools and, and things we need to think about when we're, we're developing programs for bigger groups. One-on-one is not enough. Like if I was a counsellor, which I have been, you know, you, you might get to oh, I know, at best four or five people in a day. 
Um, and that's not big numbers when you look at all the people around who, who do have mental health issues or, or, or struggling at various stages. So for me, we've got to get to, to the masses a bit more and, and do it a lot earlier. That's the other thing, like when, when you're four or five, you don't send a kid to a counsellor. And if you're a parent who's doing stuff to your kid, they're not going to go looking for a counsellor. So a lot of that stuff just can't happen because they're not going to find it. They're not going to go out there. They're not going to spend money on it. You know, this is not cheap either. You know, councils aren't cheap. And when you do have the um, government-funded ones, they tend to be newbies out of high school, uh, you know, out of university, and, and, and they don't have that experience to, to necessarily make a real impact in what I see. You know, I've been that counsellor. I've studied it. And when I came out and was qualified, I didn't even feel adequate to do it. And I'd, I've done the work. I've worked as a, as a you know, a professional as well, and then you start to go, wow, I've done – and then, you know, you're getting taught at university by academics who aren't necessarily the best people people who just know theory out of textbooks and stuff, which is great, but it doesn't – I don't think it um, has the impact it should. So kind of changing topics just slightly, have you seen uh, have you seen a negative impact with uh, lockdowns and stuff as far as people's mental health, suicide rates – have have those things increased because of isolation and and lockdown and all that? Look, I, I've only looked at the stats that's coming through. Um, I'm not working as an active counsellor at the moment, but here in Australia we're kind of lucky because we we don't have much lockdowns. We just had a recent couple of um, cases. Our, our cases are in the less than ten uh, in the whole of Australia. So, you know, we're lucky with the isolation piece. I know some of the states had some issues going back a few months where we did have lockdown. And when I say lockdown, there's still being able to go out for two hours a day and, you know, you have to mask everywhere and all that sort of thing. But nowhere near as bad as, as, as some of the other countries around the world. So so it, it, for us, we've been quite lucky. But, yes, looking at, you know, I'm obviously interested in how it is affecting the other countries. And, look, it's not just the lockdown. There's also, I mean, what's happening in India at the moment. You know, pe- people are dying at, on mass, and you know, um, obviously that has an impact when family members die. <laughs> it's always traumatic. That there has to be that impact. It's it's a happening more often. B you're isolated. Some people can't go to funerals, so that's bad enough. You can't even do those kinds of things. And so, you know, when you start to stack up, I guess the, the risk factors of the impact of the virus, um, it, it's huge. And, and the other thing is, you know, you, you look at normal risk factors like losing your job. If you can't work, a lot of countries um, have that issue at the moment where all their livelihoods based on, you know, people coming in from overseas and, and, and the whole tourist dollar stuff. So, you know, the countries are going to be hurting. People are going to be hurting. That's that's just going to happen. And, you know, you're right that the statistics definitely show that it has increased. Um, in some places, it actually decreased because they're saying that, you know, some people are talking more on, on, on the social media side where, you know, they're, they're being active. But, yeah, the... the Places that wouldn't have those things, you know, and really rely on, you know, bringing money in through tourism, there's none. You know, people that rely on on stuff like that or, or hospitality, you know, they're going to do it tough because losing your job in general is a, is a risk factor, you know. Things happen, now you're angry because you don't have a job and you're taking it out on your kids and your wife and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's just a, just a knock-on effect, and, and you know, that, that's really hard to deal with because it's such an unusual event. Absolutely, man. I can, I can definitely agree that, uh, that those places that, that rely on tourism are probably more affected than, than some. 
I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about the book and, and what inspired it and uh, maybe just tell us a little bit more about it. Okay, so um, about eight or nine years ago, I was working, as a, again, as a HR professional. I was part of an executive team, so I had access to board reports and stuff like that. But I worked for a healthcare facility that had a lot of – so there was a hospital and then we had a lot of regional little mini hospital community centre-type medical centres all around um, a regional area in Victoria. And seeing the seeing the board reports and seeing what, you know, um, services we provided was a bit of a scare for me because I, I didn't realise that we had so many young kids talking 10 or 11 on antidepressants and kids on suicide watch who were seeing our psychologists and seeing our mental health nurses and stuff like that because they, they were, you know, on, on suicide watch kind of stuff. And so at that stage, I was doing a lot of work with um, my teams in terms of, you know, obviously as nurses and doctors, you know, they see a lot of trauma as part of their roles. And so I had um, I was doing a program which, which I call Red Brain, Blue Brain, and it's based on giving them more insight around how they're feeling about, you know, how they think, how things can impact on them, but then also how you can use your own teammates and people at home to kind of talk about things because one of the big issues, as you'd be aware, is with mental health, we don't normally talk about it. You mentioned your first responders, who, um, family members who not go into their shell, but they, they kind of go, oh, you know, no one else wants to hear about this or no one wants to talk about it. So there's a reason for that. And then there's a safety aspect. They go, you know, I don't want to burden the other person or I think they're going to, you know, say something bad to me. So so there's there's that aspect to it, and so for me, I was running these programs in the healthcare facility. But then when I got these board reports, I started thinking, well, what can we do for kids who, you know, as I mentioned before, who have these who are at risk, if you like. So I kind of started to turn my program around a little bit. So what would I do for children at primary school and children at high school? Because to me, they're, they're kind of separate things. Like when I'm dealing with someone who's who's got a mental health problem, it's usually an adult. So it's a bit of a change management model because the things that have happened to them over the years means that they need to change something to get them under if, if, they, if they're stuck in that space. With younger kids, sometimes it's not about change management. So it's, it's a, a different model. It's a proactive model where we say, hey, this kid hasn't got the problems yet or they might have minor problems and it's, but it's new to them. So you kind of look at how you do that. You're not trying to break a pattern. You're trying to put in a better pattern before another pattern emerges, if you like. So if I'm robust and I'm, you know, resilient and things happen to me, I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to be able to take it on board, deal with it and move through it. Like the thing about mental health is that, you know, most people who've been around a while can deal with most things, you know. There's deaths all over the place in the world. Um and there's only a small percentage that do fall off the perch, so to speak, who, who can't deal with it. So for me, it tells you that, you know, we, we, we've got the capability to deal with it. And, and when I talk to people who've had PTSD or people that have come through bad trauma or bad experiences, you know, the, the, there's a pattern of if they were struggling at some point, it's like there's a point where things change for them. They go, I'm not doing this. It's like they make a decision and a switch. It can happen overnight. And when I was doing PTSD, for example, we kind of tell the moment where things change for them, where they're focusing on what I call red brain, which to me is the amygdala-driven um, responses, you know, when you're fearful, when you're anger, fight or flight, you know, kind of patterns. 
when I'm angry with stuff because, you know, I've lost my job and this has happened to me and, blah, 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 and you know, so focused on what you've lost and focused on being angry at the world and, and, and all that kind of stuff. The anger becomes, you know, your behaviour and that's what you're focusing on. But when, when people come through it and, and you do the therapy and the stuff that, that you're working on, there's a point where they kind of get to, instead of focusing on what I call red brain, they, they, they come up with a solution or they go, oh, I found enough of this crap, I'm going to do something else, and then the focus just changes. And that's a blue brain experience. That's why I've read brain, blue brain. So you now start to your prefrontal cortex because you're thinking of solutions. That's the part of the brain that thinks of solutions, thinks of ways to overcome what um, you know, you're dealing with. And then your focus becomes on that. So now when you're focusing on a, on a way forward, you're not focusing on all the stuff you've lost. You're not focusing on the things that make you angry. You're focusing on something that goes, you know, you can't change the event. The event's gone. It's a memory now. And this is the part where when I'm with PTSD, for example, I get them to focus on and understanding how when the event happened, you know, the neurons in your brain wired and fired together. It happened. It was a big experience, an emotional, whatever it was. And then, you know, when, you, when it's now gone and you're thinking about it at home and all that kind of stuff, the same neurons are wiring and firing together and you're creating that pattern, like a loop in your own head of an event. So part of, you know, when I'm dealing with someone with PTSD, I get them to say, hey, we want, what we want to do is break those neurons wiring and firing together in the same pattern, but also try and not replace it, but use the blue brain, use your prefrontal cortex to do something else. And so even little things at the start is about doing a thoughts diary. And the reason I get them to do that type of thing is, it's them thinking about or doing an assessment of themselves. An assessment of yourself is actually having to use that part of the brain. So instead of being just all red brain, you know, you think about the event, makes you angry or makes you sad, and you're stuck here and you go around in there, okay, think about it, do an assessment. Analysis work is a blue brain function. So just by going, oh, I better write this down because, you know, part of what I have to do is a thought story. By doing that, you're interrupting that pattern. And over time, you see over the week, I get to do it for a week normally, I look at the thoughts diary and you can actually see the numbers start to go down, 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 down over the week because they're actually interrupting that original process and the way they were thinking about things. So, you know, then you get them to do more with that. And then later on, you'll, I also get them to, I call it, you know, being the director of your own story where I say, okay, think of that event. Because a lot of times what happens is people try to put the event out of their heads. When they're awake, they can kind of consciously do that. But at night when they're at home, trying to go to sleep, it'll pop into your subconscious and they can't control that and that drives them crazy. So, you know, I want them to think about the event. I want them to be understand that they've got control of that event because it's just a memory now. It's not the actual event. So, you know, once they get used to understanding, oh, I've got control, I can do this myself, I can direct this story. So if someone's pointing a gun at you in real life, but now a month on, two months on, you can replay that back in your head and change it you're the director. I don't want that gun to be able to hurt me. I'm going to turn to a chocolate gun or just melts or a little bang thing pops out. And so, you know, you, you can not say trick your mind, but you can you can show your mind that your conscious brain has way more control than you think it does. And so you can do a lot of those kinds of things, but using and understanding how the difference between red brain and blue brain works. So, you know, you can look at various ways to do things. One of the things I've found, you know, is that all the studies I've done, you know, there's, there's lots of different methods. I always teach you multiple methods of dealing with um, psychology and stuff when, you, when, you, when you're learning to be a counsellor. They go, you know, there's this particular gestalt theory or, you know, all, all these kinds of things. And so, but essentially that they all um, 
have some impact, but nothing works for everybody. So it's about finding out a bit more about you. When you understand you, you might go, well, the things that make me feel happy is I like dogs. I, you know, because my, my oxytocin levels go up when, when I hang around with a dog. But if you're not a dog person, well, that's not going to work for you. It might be taking your kids to the zoo and just seeing something different. And, you know, so understanding a lot of the things that work for our blue brain is a key part to, to anything that I normally promote. I go, I'm not aligned to one theory of psychology. They all work, but go and find out a bit about you. When you understand that about you, you start to look for things and patterns that work for you. So that's kind of the, the methodology I use. Man, there was a lot of a lot of great information in there. I feel like I'm a little bit overwhelmed with with everything you just said, man. That, that's a lot, lot to lot to process. Oh, sorry, I didn't get your question though. Sorry, I just realised. In terms of the book, so so the book is written and all that stuff talked about. So I tried to um, do a school program many years ago and I developed it with the view of taking it to schools. I did that, spoke to schools, local local schools, had the police involved, had kind of different services involved. Because I see there's an impact if you, if you get the younger people who, if they stay in school and they're a bit more robust and they're, not, and they're dealing with it, they tend not to have all these other issues like going to criminality, you know, all that stuff. So I wrote the book in a way, uh, it's a story about a person who's decided they're going to suicide and they've been bullied by others at school. They decide they want to um, send the messages out to the people that have bullied them, the people that stood around and laughed at them weren't actually active bullies because this is all, this is where the social impact of, of other people, you know, laughing at you can have an impact. You get shame and guilt and all those emotions. Again, red brain experiences, as I call it. And so I wrote the story around that. The, the other thing I wrote, so I introduced myself into the story as a character. So the person sends a letter to me as well as these other people they think have an impact, but the person wants to see change at the school. They don't want this to happen to some other child. So I come in and actually work with the school on, you know, the grieving process um, with obviously losing a student through suicide, pretty traumatic. Then there's the, the kind of people who go, wow, I, I was part of that um, the reason this person's in this space, some, you know, obviously very um, direct and some a little bit indirect. And so it's about um, understanding how each of those people will have to deal with what, what this person's, um, you know, I guess accusing them of. But at the same time, um, so there's the, there's the dealing with the suicide piece and then the second part of the program is really focusing, talking at school about how they can try and prevent this happening in the future. And this is where... You know, some of the initiatives is based around what I was saying about how you interact with each other, how you take things on board. So if, 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 so, at the moment, let's say I'm a six-year-old and you're a bit of a bully because, you know, things have happened to you at home, dad picks on you and calls you whatever. So now you've got that rage and you want to take it out on someone else. So you normally pick the younger kid, the smaller kid, and, you know, the obvious kid that, you know, maybe won't fight back. Because it's really, it's just, bullying is just another way of um, expressing, you know, wanting to feel better for yourself. So you're doing that stuff. I mean, there's studies even around the world about, you know, high-level apes as they go down the hierarchy. You know, if their oxytocin levels go up, and sorry, their um, their cortisol levels go up, which is our stress hormone, um, you know, they literally take it out on the lower-order monkeys. 
So it makes them feel better. Their cortisol levels actually go down because they beat up on the other one. They go, oh, I feel better. And they, and, and they do it all the way down. And the, obviously the lowest might be cops the worst because they got no one to take it out on. So they probably just take it out on, you know, their, their wife or, or family members if you put it into a human um, space. So, you know, all these things are important to understand that it has that knock-on effect. But if we can deal with this young kid comes in, we're talking about what, Interactions. So, so normally the kid that gets bullied feels scared, so they don't talk to anybody. Um, or if they do go to the teacher, the teacher didn't see it, it's a one-on-one, he said, she said top stuff. And so, you know, um, even when I do investigations at work, it's always like that. Someone says, oh, you know, this person said this to me. Now, where's the evidence? Oh, I didn't say that. So that's all I've got. And, you know, people who are bullies tend to be sometimes smarter about that and, and so – only pick on people when there's no one around and that kind of thing. So these things can be hard to deal with and, and, and you know, you need evidence, obviously, evidence-based stuff at, at a workplace. But for kids, I mean, it's about understanding a lot of these um, impacts on, on each other but being more direct early on about having conversations. So one of the, one of the things in, in my book is really focusing on something called the dialogue model. So the dialogue model comes out of a book called Crucial Conversations and How to Have but in a nutshell, it does go into what's happening in my head and how do I feel when I'm talking to you. Like at the moment, I don't think you're feeling unsafe. I'm certainly not feeling unsafe. We're having decent conversation. But if there's any safety aspect in a conversation where you and I are interacting and I come in and say, you know, yell abuse at you or something and you go, uh-oh, you tell yourself a story. We have this internal dialogue in our head that this is where the brain and how we feel mm-hmm. makes our decision and how our interactions go. So if I'm angry at you and you see or hear that, you tell yourself a story and then you feel a certain way and then you act. Now, if you tell yourself a story, oh, Clint's really angry with me, what the hell? I'm, I'm a timid person, so I, I won't want to say anything. I don't want to push any more buttons of Clint's. So the conversation is not necessarily, it's going to be on my terms because I'm the aggressor. If, if, if you're also an aggressor, I say that to you and you go, he's having it. So you go, I see and hear Clint going off at me. I tell myself a story, which is that Clint's really angry. I feel a certain way. Well, I'm feeling angry. So now I puff my chest out and, and the two of us are now having a conversation outside what they call a blue pool where now we're having an argument and we're not actually going to deal well with it because you're angry, I'm angry. I don't want to listen to your thing. I think you're an idiot. You think I'm an idiot and that's how these conversations take place. So think of that as a you know a six year old doing the same thing or or that kind of stuff. If we if we can do that better, where part of how we control, we go, okay, instead of going, I tell myself a story. If 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 I can like when I teach stuff, first responders about not overstepping the mark. You know, you and I are in a fight. I'm going to arrest you. George Floyd stuff is is very important in in this space where you know there's a number of reasons that cop didn't get off that guy. In his own head. And some of that involves, you know, America's got lots of guns around. The guys had a previous record. So all these things, and having been a cop, you know, you have to, but, but you need to be able to de-escalate when it's needed. In this case, they didn't do that. The other thing that scares me about that whole process is there were other police around and says, hey, Dave, get off the bike. Well, yeah, he's all right. He's cuffed. We can have him standing up against the car. We don't have to sit on him. You know, the, the, there was no interactions between the police that would prevent that. One of the things I teach when I was doing stuff with the police is exactly that, that we work as a team. When I'm in red brain, I think, you know, I've got to hold this guy down because he's dangerous or there's other people around. 
whatever's going on in my head, as a team, my teammates should be looking around and going, okay, let him go now. And you know what I mean? So that, that those things didn't happen. Again, red brain can come in um, many forms, but if you understand how to be able to deal with that better, like when I'm teaching that stuff, I'm saying if I can have a conversation in my head that keeps me in blue, we're more likely to have a good outcome. If I go into red, sorry, if you in red and I go into red, we're going to have that problem I just mentioned before where the interaction is going to be aggressive. But if I'm at least going, why is this guy so angry? What can I do to help this guy? So if I'm having that conversation, I'm actually asking my blue brain to come up with an answer. So I'm keeping myself calm. It's keeping me calm. I'm not going into red, calming myself down. And look, a lot of police do this um, unknowingly because it's just become a pattern, the ones that are good at this stuff. And I, I recognise that I was really good at it as a cop. I, you know, I was able to talk a lot of people down. The only people I couldn't talk down people who are drug affected. They obviously deal differently, right? But, um, you know, when, you, when, when you're dealing with people who might be going through some problems or, or that kind of stuff, it's about staying calm yourself and wanting to understand, asking them questions. Because then once you recognise what you've got to do to keep you in blue, you start to, you start to do the same things to, and then this is the stuff I teach, is you, you try to think, well, okay, I asked this guy some questions. Then if he has to answer in a blue brain, requires his blue brain to function, you know, we're going to get a better result. He's going to calm him down a little bit. He's got to think about a solution, like even little things like, so, you know, if you were to do, you haven't done anything wrong yet, let's just talk about it. Like what would your family think about this? Oh, you know, and then they have to think about that answer rather than just they're angry about, you know, whatever happened prior to that because you know what it's like. You know, people will take things out on other people. They're the straw that broke the camel's back. They're angry at you because you happen to be there and it's not you as the reason for them being angry. And it's no different when, when you're dealing with people. And this is what I was saying about, you know, the police obviously called things for for various reasons, but essentially sometimes you're walking into someone else's long history. You know, Black Lives Matter is a great example of people just being angry. So, yes, there's been racism and all that, but are they really angry at that guy whose shop is down the road? Probably not. You know, they take it out on them because that's their way of feeling, you know, cathartic or, or wanting to release something. And, and, and so that's why you see that because, you know, a lot of people question, they go, look, we don't have a problem with people protesting it, but why are they going and stealing and, and looting and doing all these things? That's that's what you see in the behaviour because there's the anger and the history of the anger that comes with it. So this person's ready to be angry. You know what I mean? And so that's the kind of manifestations that you see. Not everyone's obviously doing it, I get that. But you can kind of explain the behaviour better where you go, when you're pent up angry at the world for what you didn't get, all this stuff, then it comes out. And, and understanding that's a key part of how we're going to get better at solutions. That's the problem I find that no one's talking about those solutions. They're all talking about, you know, wanting to invest money and, you know, we're going to, yes, you've got to change social problems, but it's got to be about empowerment of the people before we do anything. A lot of good stuff, man. I really, really do appreciate you coming on and, and having this conversation. We're, we're kind of getting towards the end of the episode. So uh, if the listeners are interested in uh, maybe contacting you or finding out more about the book, uh, Lighting the Blue Flame, where can uh, where can they find you? Probably I'm, I'm in the process of doing a website, but at the moment, probably just getting on my LinkedIn account. Um, I've got myself listed as Bob Adams. Uh, you can also look at the book. So there's a Amazon. It's on Amazon, so um, and and other places. But Amazon's probably the easiest. They also give you 
three few chapters. So you go into the Amazon website, you see the book, click on the book itself, the actual picture says the book inside, and you get access to three or four chapters if people are interested in that kind of stuff. And yeah, I mean that, that's probably the easiest until until my website's officially up. Awesome. Well, Clint, I really appreciate you coming on the show today and and sharing what you've learned about mental health and man, the red brain, blue brain. It's it's a lot to think about, and I really do appreciate you breaking it down into uh, into something that's so easy for us to understand. Because I feel like a lot of times when I hear people talk about mental health especially if they're professionals, I feel like they're talking up above my head and they're using terminology that I'm not familiar with. And it's like, uh, and you just kind of break it down to this really simple, easy to grasp thing. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing that with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very appreciative of that. Clint, my brother from down under, thank you again for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed our conversation be sure to check out his book, Lighting the Blue Flame, as well as his website, Blue Flame Projects, where he has tons of great blog posts about mental health. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.